what do you do when your body wants what your heart knows is wrong? What do you do when your body wants something that your heart knows is wrong? Now, the thing about this question is, we don't have to even imagine that, do we? All of us could go back in time, maybe a year, maybe ten, maybe five, maybe a day, maybe last vacation, a business trip. You don't have to imagine very hard to think about a time when your body wanted to do something your heart knew was wrong. And find ourselves in a season of dilemma. We didn't think of it maybe in those terms when that question came to our mind, but we knew something was wrong and our body said, yes. And our heart said, this is not a good idea. Maybe it was your conscience. Maybe it was your guardian angel. Maybe it was the voice of your parents in your head that said, this is not a good idea. Maybe it was the Spirit of God. But what did you do when your body wanted something that your heart knew was wrong? The way that you answer this question consistently in some way determines the direction of your entire life. Whether it's purchases that leave you in debt or it's relationship, relationships that leave you with guilt. I think a lot of us have lived long enough to know that if you get this question wrong, it has the potential to send you down a path from which you may never fully recover. Now, I start with this really hard question because the part of the Bible we're going to look at today poses this question in a life of a person. We've been in the middle of a series called Moral Mayhem. John did a great job looking at the judges uh, last week, and if you missed that, make sure you go on our app and connect with our notes and messages, and you can listen to all the things you might have missed if you're visiting with us. We're right in the midst of uh, looking at a book of Judges in the Bible. Now, the book of the uh, Judges is found in the Old Testament. It's kind of in the first part of the Bible. And it finds itself situated with the people of Israel. And John unpacked to us what some of those judges looked like and what they were doing. And he posed some great questions. And John left, with, left us with a comment saying that our maximum freedom is found under the canopy of God's authority. And that's a hard thing to understand. But if we look at the judges, and if you're visiting with us, a little bit of the backstory is we have Moses who takes Israelites out of Egypt, and Israel gets to the promised land, and Joshua kind of takes over, and he gets them ready, and then he passes away, and there's about a 300-year period before Israel becomes a monarchy, before they have a king. They kind of live and are ruled by judges. Now, don't think of courtroom judges. They're not, you know, black robe and wigs. Actually, I don't even know if they wear wigs anymore. That's just what I see on TV. Um, but these judges are more like, like uh, military leaders, advisors. They're there to, tell, to help the community follow the law and to fight if, when they're being invaded. And there was 12 tribes of Israel, and there was judges appointed to help administer this law. And it was kind of really a dark and terrible time in the life of ancient Israel. They went through cycles of disobedience. They would disobey God's law, and then there would be this disaster that would happen. They would face consequences of their decisions. And then God would come along and send deliver, and they kind of things would get better. And it was typically a judge, and God would raise them up, and then they'd go through it again. They forget who God is, and they would do bad, and things would go really bad, and they would assume God was a certain way, and they would keep doing these bad things. And there was this assumption of this just like 
trying to find their way in life and trying to copy the neighbors around them, and it just constantly led them to this moral mayhem, to this decay. And they would come in and, and get things straightened out as the judge would come in, and God would get them out of the trouble, but they would continually find themselves in a problem. Well, Israel went through this over and over and over through a period of judges. And God would raise up the judge, as I said. But in this book, we really encounter Israel as they hit rock bottom. They have committed genocide in this time. They're orchestrated mass kidnappings. And it's so dark and ominous, it's even hard to understand why we would read this book and why would it be in the Bible. But here's what I think it says. I think the reason it's in there is because it connects with our human condition. And through the book of, the, of Judges, we have this verse that's repeated over and over, and the book ends with this verse, and it says this, In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. You see, the reason Israel didn't have a king was because as God led them out of captivity, out of slavery, and reminded them what it looks like to be human again, he said, let me be your king. I have rescued you. I have shown you a new way to live. Let me be the king who allows you to have freedom, who allows you to flourish, who allows you to see what it's like to be a new humanity. And yet, Israel would forget, and everybody began to do what was right in their own eyes. They began to have this attitude that we talked about in the first week. You do you, man. Do whatever you want, as long as it kind of doesn't hurt me. But life really doesn't work that way, because everything we do has consequences. And all of us can look back in time in our lives when we acted selfish, when we didn't look for wisdom, but instead said, hey, everyone else is doing this. What's the big deal? On top of it, all the people around Israel had their own idea of what God was like. They had gods they worshipped. And because they had gods they worshipped, those gods shaped them to be a certain kind of people. And those cultures were, because they thought God was chaotic and because God was far removed and because God didn't care, it caused them to sacrifice children, to love, to murder, and enslave them in such a way that was completely different from what God wanted Israel to be like. And so over this time, Israel found themselves in this cycle, in this spiral of defeat. And during these 300 years, they had 12 judges, as I said earlier. And John talked about five judges, but today I want to focus on the one. So the two kind of famous judges, and if you've never been to church before and you're kind of like, I, I'm not really sure what you're talking about here, first of all, welcome. We're so glad you're here. But second of all, you probably have heard some of these names. One was Gideon, right? Even if you don't know much about Gideon, if you've stayed in a hotel, you probably opened the, the little shelf on the beside, uh, bedside table and it had a Bible with Gideon's stamp on it. And it's a crazy story that Gideon has. And so if, you, if you've never read it, I'd, I'd encourage you to look it up and read it. It's fascinating. But the judge that we really want us to look at is Samson. Now, you may have heard about him because he was strong or he needed a haircut or he didn't need a haircut, something like that. But I think it's important for us to understand this character of Samson. Now, the reason I think he's one of the most important characters in the book of Judges is that, he, that Samson is a reflection of what the nation of Israel was supposed to be like. So not only does the book reflect what human condition is like, it actually reflects in the characters what the nation should be like. So the author is very clever as he writes the book of Judges and as he spells out the story of Samson, is that through his story we see what the nation should be like. And through his story we should see how we should be like. And it's not an accident. The authors are very, 
very clever. The Bible is very sophisticated writing. And each character in the Bible sometimes only has only few details mentioned. Sometimes it's a name or maybe a physical description. But those things kind of foreshadow for us what is, what is to come. Help us understand what's going on in the story. So Samson is a reflection of what is going on in Israel. And through this talk today, I want to suggest that he's also a reflection of what's going on in our life as well. So God has established Israel to be a light to the rest of the nations. He has led them out and he said, because you know who I am, if you act a certain way, other people will know what true freedom looks like. Other people will know what it looks like to treat other people well. Other people will know what it looks like to care for the poor and the widow. So don't be like other nations, not because of their race, not because of their nationality, but because of who their God is. Be like me. And Israel failed over and over and over. So we get to the story of Samson. He's one of Israel's judges, and he gets trapped in this cycle of disobedience as well. And he gets in trouble here, and I think we're going to learn this a little bit, is because our very private choices and Samson's very private choices had very public consequences. And this is the real problem for Samson. And after, I'm, I'm not going to read it to you. I'm just going to retell the story. And if you're interested in it and you're kind of like, oh, this is really connecting with me, I'd encourage you to read it. It's found in chapter 13 to 16. But do that uh, at home. And you can actually check out the Bible Project video on it. It's really solid. You can just Google Bible Project, Judges, and it'll come up. And so what happens in the story is we start with the birth of Samson. And it's kind of like all the famous people in the Bible, that kind of birth story. And if you read that and you're kind of reading uh, the Bible and you're like, wait a minute, I kind of heard this before, it's often a clue to look back at something. It's often a clue of how God works in our culture, in our world. And it's often not the way we expect. So there's a man and a woman, and they can't have children, right? You've heard this story before, right? It continues through the Bible. So there's a man and a woman, and they can't have a child, and they think they're too old to have a child eventually, and then an angel of the Lord appears to them and says, hey, you're going to have a child, and you're going to have a son, and the son is going to be special. The son is going to be special, and the Spirit of God is going to rest on him, and he's going to do extraordinary things. He's going to be different, and God has something specific planned for your son, and so when you raise him, you're going to raise him differently than other children. You're actually going to separate him from some things, and you're going to have a vow. And the angel of the Lord told Samson's parents that he was to take a Nazarite vow. Now, if you're not familiar with the Nazarite vow, that's okay. But basically what it is, he's can't, he can't do three things. One is he can't drink anything made of grapes, so no wine, no grape juice. He couldn't touch anything dead, and he couldn't cut his hair. Okay? That was going to set him apart from other people. He's going to physically do something very different to represent that the Spirit of God is in his body and he's, and he's a very different person. Now, the Nazarite vow was generally something someone decided uh, when they were of a certain age. And it is, they decided to do this because they wanted to make things right or they wanted to reset something in life. And they would do this and it was a choice of theirs and it usually lasted about 30 to 90 days, something like that. But in Samson's case, this poor kid, he had no choice. His parents basically said, this is going to be you because the angel appeared. We couldn't have children. We had a child. So you're going to be extraordinary. So you actually can't do this. So at age six or seven or eight, they kind of explained to him, hey, by the way, you can't get a haircut and stop touching dead things because you're not supposed to and, uh, and don't drink any grape juice or wine. 
So he becomes a teenager and he's sent to the border of Israel, basically becomes a border guard. And um, it's a border between Israel and the Philistines, and it's close to the coast. And he's around other young men his age. But, he re- but we realize quickly in the story that Samson um, is something special. He's extraordinary. He has this amazing strength. He has actually this physical strength to do something other people can't do. And it's very noticeable. Now, you might have heard the story of Samson. You might have seen the, the storybook Bibles. And you kind of have this representation of this, somebody who's really muscular because he's so strong and he's just ripped and he just looks huge. But I actually think the way the story plays out is that he isn't ripped or huge. Because people are constantly surprised at his strength and what he can do. Like, I mean, when we watch a strongman competition on TV and the guy's like super big and he lifts a giant boulder for some reason, and you're like, well, yeah, you can lift that. Look at you. You look like you've been training for this your whole life. Where Samson, people are actually quite surprised what he can do. So I think he kind of looks kind of ordinary, actually, kind of average, maybe a little bit like me. All right. Thank you. Um, I remember uh, I had a friend come over once I, a couple of years ago. I built a deck in the back of my house. And this friend knew I was a pastor and came over to visit. And he came over and he's like, whoa, this is a nice deck. I said, yeah, I, I built it. Thank you. And he said, you built this? Must have been the work of God through you because there's no way you could do this. Something about me seemed very average to him, which is fine. So I think, in my opinion, Samson is kind of like that too. I don't, I don't think he's actually, I, don't, I have no idea. This is just how I'm imagining the story. But something about him was he's quite average, but he had extraordinary strength. And as he's growing up, he's recognized as a leader and eventually becomes a judge. And he's, on, he's a border patrol agent uh, between Israel and Philistines. And that's where the story begins to get quite interesting. As he worked on the, on the border and defended his country, uh, he became enamored with Philistine women. And apparently once in a while at night, he would creep across the border and go down to these other towns, towns of their enemies, towns of the people he was protecting the border from, and he would hang out with some ladies. Now, it's a little bit uh, weird because one, they're, they're, they're his enemies, and two, it's very risky because they're his enemies, so they, they want to get him. In fact, one of the stories about his life, he almost loses his life hanging out with these women overnight. Uh, the Philistines hear about this. They knew he was a judge. They hated him. They knew how, how many military successes he had, so they tried to kill him. And he gets away, but he was very strong. So it's like, it's a whole thing that just, he gets away with it. But he's so enamored by women. His body is so driven by desire that all the things that he's been called out to by God, by his parents, through this Nazareth vow, through this calling, through this physical strength in his life, doesn't affect him in a way that it should. It doesn't pull him away or makes him think or makes him stop. It makes him go, maybe I shouldn't do this. In fact, the very first story we hear about him after his birth is that he, it's him getting in trouble with this Philistine woman and uh, he went to t- uh, down to a town, Timna, and saw there a young Philistine woman and he came across the border and he went to see her and he loves her and he goes to his parents. He says, get me this wife. I want her. Make, go get her. Go to our enemies. Get her for me because I want to marry her. And the parents have a very obvious response, like, really? You want us to risk our lives to get this one? Like, this is what you want? And they say something interesting. They say, isn't there an acceptable woman 
among your relatives? I think like, they're not trying to marry him to his cousins. Well, maybe, but I think they're talking about their nation. They're talking about why do you have to go over there and pursue this? Why, like, isn't there somebody here that's good enough for you? Now, some of you may have dating children that are dating and, you know, maybe one of their dates at one time came over to your house and you were like, oh, nice to meet you. And then they leave and you're like, is there no one else in your school at all? No. Or like in my case, when I brought Jessica for the first time over to my house and she left, parents are like, lock that down. You will never do better. You will. They were right. So they're kind of like that. They're like, is there no other woman here? Why do you have to go over there? But yeah, he demands it. And they're like, but you're special. You're set aside. There's something that God wants to do extraordinary through you. Remember, like, we couldn't even have children. And then God, or angel appeared to us, and now we have a child, and we are set up aside. Why do you want to do this? Why, why are you doing this? And he says, no, I want to do this. Uh, and they're like, why do you want to go to them? Now, this is a loaded comment, right? Because in, sometimes when we read the Bible, we can assume this is a racial thing or a nationalistic thing, like them, like they're not as, like us, like they're below us, they're worse. But this is not actually what, what is being said here. What's being said here is that they have a different God. And because they have a different God, they live a different way. And the way they live is chaotic and destructive. And if you go and you get this wife, you will live chaotic and destructive life. It's kind of like um, you're a writer fan. And you go to university. And you meet this nice girl from Manitoba. And she's great. And she's lovely. And you get engaged. And you get married, and all of a sudden you notice she's bringing blue and gold stuff into your house. These idols. And eventually you're like, well, wait a minute. You know, like, they're in the final. Maybe I'll support my wife and I cheer for them. And you give up your soul. <laughs> so parents of Samson are saying this. Don't do this because you're going to give up your soul. You're going to chase a different God. And isn't there a sweet girl here that we can connect you with? But Samson's, uh, nope, I want her, get her. So they do, and they have this whole wedding, and it, it's a disaster, and people are angry, and like he offends everybody on both sides. And eventually, even though they're married, they take her, the Philistines take her away from him, and they marry her off to somebody else. And then because of the association she has with Samson, she's mur like it's a disaster all through and through. Everything that everybody could have predicted happened, all because he kept giving in to what his body wanted over what his heart said. And there's this another story um, where, where he again goes after another woman and he gets in trouble and he uses his super strength to get out of it and it's completely irresponsible but he's completely just eaten up with lust. Samson is driven by his body's desires. And that's kind of a weird summary of the whole story of Samson. But it gets to the one bigger story that I want to share with. And that's a, a story of Samson and Delilah. And you might have heard the names. You might have heard a little bit of the story. But I'm going to really unpack it. And I'm going to tell you it in detail. And I think there's something in us that would say when we hear this story, geez, thanks for writing this, authors. Thanks for showing us what God was doing and what Samson wasn't doing. But I would never, I would never do that. 
So you read the story and part of you goes, this guy is just so dumb because I would never do this. But when we forget the healthy design for human flourishing, we tend to make terrible decisions based on what our body wants over what our heart or conscience says. So this is the story. Sometime later, Samson fell in love with another woman from the valley of Sorek, whose name is Delilah. So once again, he's walking around, moving around at night, creeping, driving around places he shouldn't be driving, logging on on the computer, places he shouldn't be logging on to. And he meets another woman and he falls in love with her. And this is different. It's not a one-night stand anymore. He's really in love. And I know there's this other thing that happened to that other wife, but hey, this is going to be really different this time. He's really in love. And the rulers of Philistines find out that Samson's in love with Delilah. And so they bring Delilah to them and they say, see if you can lure him. Right? You know what a lure is, right? When we throw it in the, in the water to lure the fish, to catch it, to hook him. And they say, Let's see if you can lure him. See if he can show us the secret of his strength because he keeps messing things up. We don't like him, but we can't defeat him because he's too strong. So see if we can do this and we'll pay you. There's five of them. We'll pay you 1,100 shekels, which is hard to calculate by today's standards, but it's probably like $90,000 in our currency, maybe a little more, maybe 100,000. And, and they say to Delilah, find out the secret. So Delilah says to, uh, to Samson, tell me your secret. Tell me the secret of your great strength, how you can be tied up, subdued. How can we overcome you? Which is a really weird thing to ask somebody you're in love with. Tell me your secret. Tell me how we can tie you up, how we can control you. How can we subjugate you? How can we enslave you? Like that should have been a really big clue for Samson, but nope. So Samson lies to her and he says, uh, if anyone ties me up with seven fresh bowstrings, that have not been dried, I'll become weak as any other man. I'll be just like everyone else. So all the rulers buy fresh bowstrings and they, she gets him all tied up and then she yells, Samson, Philistines are coming and sure enough, he just snaps it like nothing and beats them up and, and then she's super mad at him. You fooled me. You lied to me. Just like, wait a minute. I told you a lie and then that happened to me and people tried to kill me. And then I broke the things, took care of business, and you're mad at me. It's relationships. You're trying to deceive him. So she's asked and asked again and says, stop making a fool of me. He lies to her again. He says, okay, I'll tell you what it was. It wasn't bowstrings. You know, I was just lying that time. But it's, if you get a new rope, if it's very new and, uh, and hasn't been used before and you tie me up, then I'll be just like everybody else. So she gets him drunk. Ties them up, yells, Philistines are coming, boom, he snaps it off again, takes care of business, and she's mad at him again. You're lying to me. And you're reading this story, and you kind of come to this question, like, I would never do this. Like, what is Samson doing? Why is he, why does he keep doing this thing over and over? Why can't he just walk away from her? Why can't he just break this bad habit? Why is he so driven by lust that he remains in a place where someone is trying to clearly murder him. And she asks him again, and he says, lies to her again, and says, well, if you weave the braids of my hair in the loom, I don't know how long his hair is at this point, but if you do this kind of thing, then I'll be like everybody else. And sure enough, she yells Philistines, she gets him drunk, 
yells it, he snaps everything apart and takes care of business again. And she says this to him, how can you say I love you when you won't confide in me? Think about how dysfunctional this relationship is. She's trying to clearly murder him. He's lying to her. The reason he's lying to her is because he's afraid to tell her the truth he's, because she will kill him, but he stays in this relationship. And we read in the story with such nagging that she has on him, she continues at him with such nagging, she prodded him day after day until he was sick to death of it, literally. So he told her everything. Eventually, he gave in. His temptation and what his body wanted him to do pulled him into a direction in such a way that he eventually told her something that could destroy him. He says, no razor. There's been no razor used on my head because I have this vow that, made, that my parents made on my behalf and they explained to me that this is supposed to make me super special and I have these extraordinary things that I'm going to do and, uh, and I'm just trying to figure all that out. But I haven't really done it because I'm kind of chasing these urges that I have, these desires that I have, that I'm just blinded even to my call in my life because everything for me has been consumed by women and by you, Delilah, fine, you know my truth, you know my secret, I'm going to tell it to you. Here's what it is. My hair has never been cut, no razor has touched my head. And she gets him drunk, ties him up, gives him a haircut, and she yells, Philistines are upon you. And he got up and expected to do what he always does. But the spirit, and this is really interesting that it says this in, the, in this part of the book of Judges, but the spirit of God had left him. His pursuit of lust. The spirit of God was in him, and he was still able to do whatever he wanted to do because the spirit of God is not there to control you. When John said last week, our maximum freedom is found under the canopy of God's authority, this is what God's authority is like to love you, to call you out, to put a purpose in your life, but not to force you to do anything you don't want to do. And the Spirit of God left him. And the Philistines attacked him and they seized him and they gouged his eyes out, which has been the problem for him the whole time anyways. And they took him down to Gaza, binding him in bronze shackles just in case and they set him in a grinding grain in prison. And eventually he dies in shackles and he dies a prisoner. Now he takes the thing down with him on all of them too, but it's not a happy ending. The calling on his life from his birth was missed because of lust and pursuit of what his body wanted, even when the heart told him, you shouldn't do this. How could anybody be this stupid? I would never do that. When you do what you want because you think it's right in your eyes, when you give into the kingdom of covet, of lust, you ignore that still small voice inside of you. The voice of the Spirit, the Spirit of God. When you've never yielded your life to God, when you ever listen to it, you eventually get yourself in trouble and you do stupid things. And then you look back, and it's clear as, as day. You say, how could I have been so stupid? Why did I do this? I wonder if Samson, when he was shackled in prison, looked on his life and said, why did I do that? Why did I do This was so meaningless. Why did I do that? But when you forget the character of God, 
and you forget who he is. You're led to places that you never wanted to go. When you say everybody else is doing this, it seems to be working for them. What's the big deal? When you live and do what you think is right in your own eyes, the possibility is you can create moral mayhem. Now here's why this whole story is so important. And here's why I think it was a Samson's story is a reflection of Israel's story, which is a reflection of the human condition. Is that we were called out to something greater. We were called out to something more than just chasing impulses and desires. Now they're not bad. Don't hear me understand that it's desires in our life are bad or, or those things we're not. When they're not properly garnished or understood under the canopy of God's authority, they lead us to destruction. And here's what I want to say to you, is you have, you and I, I want to say this to myself as well, have no idea what God wants to do in, your, in you and through your life. You have no idea what God would do if you would just yield your life to him. And the amazing part is God is never done with us. He redeems he forgives, he restores, he rebuilds, he rejuvenates, he resurrects. He reminds us that God is for us. When we read the book of Judges and all the mayhem and all the cruelty and all the craziness, what we learn out of this story is that people forgot God, but God never gave up on them. That God continued to pursue. He continued to look past their mistakes and said, I will rescue you, you will be my people. And look, I know how many of us can look at the story of Samson and say, okay, well, I wasn't dedicated to God from birth, and all these stories are, 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 are fascinating. People couldn't have, like, that didn't happen to me. How would I know? And I know your story is complex and messy just as mine is, and we have many turns, and we all have reasons for our actions. And some of the events that have happened to us were out of our control, and some of the events that happened to us were done by somebody else creating mayhem to us. I know. What I also know is that God is for you and he wants you to have the maximum freedom which is found under his authority. And he wants to take you to a place where you find humanity that is flourishing and not enslaved again to lust, to greed. Moral mayhem occurs when we do whatever we want. Spirit of God rested on Samson, but Samson pursued what his body wanted despite the spirit, and it cost him everything. Now, 1,300 years later, after the story of Samson, another Jewish man comes along whose life has been totally changed by his faith in Jesus Christ. Before his, his experience with Jesus, he approved of murders and persecution, and he was doing what he thought was right, all along the way, he was doing what he thought was right. But after he encounters Jesus, his life is changed forever. And he begins to live in the way that his morality and actions are shaped by the life and teachings of Jesus. So he wrote this. He wrote a letter to a church in Corinth. And he says this, Do you not know that your bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God, you are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. What I love about that passage, what I love about that continuation of the story, what I love about this greater narrative is that Paul, 
who was Saul, writes this to the church, and he reminds them of the Spirit of God. Do you remember how the Spirit of God would rest on Samson? Because of what Jesus has done on the cross and in his resurrection, that same Spirit of God lives in you. The same spirit that inhabited the nation of Israel, the same spirit that was supposed to lead Samson to extraordinary things, lives in you. And just like Samson, we have the option to ignore the spirit of God. The same Holy Spirit resides in you and I. Look at this part of the verse you are not your own. You can say, well, I wasn't called out to this, to this covenant like Samson was. Jesus says, you are not your own. You have been set apart. You were bought at a price. Churches have this cross in most of their buildings or on top of their buildings. And it's a device of cruelty. It's a reminder for us that this place here is not for all of us with perfect notions and perfect ideas. It's a reminder that all of us come with brokenness and regrets. And it's a reminder what kind of price was paid so we can enjoy the freedom to say we are not our own. We are bought at a price. And look at the conclusion here. Paul says, honor, because of this, honor God with your bodies. You see, we are like Samson. We are like the nation of Israel. If you are a follower of Jesus, if you put your faith in Christ, the Bible reminds us that the Holy Spirit inhabits your body. Which is why I ask the question, do you have any idea what God wants to do in you or through you? We don't if we chase with our bodies about, about any kind of desire we have. But when we yield our hearts to God, when we yield our hearts to God's Spirit, you have no idea the extraordinary things he can do in you and through you. Samson lost that vision. And it cost him his life. And we have no idea what the story would have been like had he listened to the call of God in his life fully. God wants something great for you and he knows the mess around you he knows the mess in you and he says i want my spirit to rest on you because you are set apart you're extraordinary yes even you so you say so what well the so what is choosing what is right and wrong for yourself propelled by desires will lead you to where you and what you fear will lead you to where and what you fear the most. Samson, with all his strength and all his pursuit of women, did not want to die, did not want to lose the call in his life. But choosing to follow his desires led him to death and destruction. And sometimes when we talk about topics like this, a lot of us can hang our heads and think about past and regrets. And think about all the private choices. They made very public consequences that hurt many people. And what you thought was just doing what was right in your own eyes seemed to create mayhem. And that mayhem created hell for you or for someone. 
And I love this quote I saw the other day from Andy Stanley. He says, the problem with always doing what you want to do is eventually you arrive at precisely where you don't want to be. And here's the amazing part in the story of Judges, is that God does not give up on his nation and his people. And that is the amazing part for us, is that God does not give up on us. He's not taking you away from anything fun. He's not pulling you away and saying you need to be enslaved and be this way and be very religious. He's calling you into maximum freedom, to a new humanity, one that can flourish, one that has hope, one that has life, one that treats your neighbor as you treat yourself with love and kindness. So the question we need to ask ourselves is, so what are you going to do when your body wants what your heart knows is wrong? Here's what I hope. I hope you learn to pay attention to that still small voice of God in your heart. I pray and I hope that you pay attention to that small voice. For Jesus freely, because of what it costs him, gives you his spirit. And even when you have run amok of your life or someone else's life, even when you've created mayhem, he gives you his spirit to accomplish, to accomplish much. And maybe you're here the, uh, and you're visiting and you're not sure how to take all this or how to even understand this. I want you to know that we want the best for you because that's what God wants for you. He wants you to have life. So now what? Receive support to have health in your life. You have a desire and a pull which was designed for you, but misuse can run amok and will run, run amok in your life. So we have different ministries and programs. We have mentoring, is what John talked about last week. We have marriage mentoring. We have the marriage course coming up in the new year. We have people that want to talk to you to help you set a course that's so different that your desires often pull you into. Because the Spirit of God wants to do extraordinary things in you and through you. Would you stand with me? After the service, there's going to be a team up front here, and they just want to talk to you. So if something gripped your heart, or if you're struggling with something, or if you're saying, well, well, how does this make sense in my life? Maybe I've been like Samson, maybe I've been like somebody who's, who's been like Philistines. Well, whatever it is for you in this story, there's a team that's going to be up front here that would love to talk to you, to pray with you, to unpack some of this, to find your next best step, to find health in your life. And I want you to know that it's never too late. This is the beauty of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is that he offers life and health and hope to all of us. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you that you reach out. We thank you that you look at the most messed up situations and you say, I can resurrect this. There is hope. We thank you that you love us that much. We thank you that we have been paid with a heavy, heavy price. God, be with us as we go from here. Guide us and speak to us clearly in our hearts. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is a glory and yours is a kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. We praise in your name. Amen. If you're a guest with us, there's books at the information desk. There will be a team up front. Feel free to come up. Go in peace.